1: Tired of the late night shows that do nothing but political jokes? Then check out Man of the People with Pat Tomasulo, a different kind of comedy show. Stream it to any device Saturday nights at 11 East, 10 Central at WGNTV.com slash live. You can also find Man of the People on YouTube at Man of the People TV. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I'm your host, Michael Ian Black. I'm your reader. I'm your friend. I'm your colleague. I'm your fellow traveler through this fictional county, Wessex, that Thomas Hardy Has created from nothing. And when last we left Jude, he had penned some letters to the heads of colleges there in Christminster, the fictional seat of learning in Wessex. And he basically uh, was looking for quote unquote advice from these deans. But that's not what he was looking for. He was looking for somebody to rescue him from obscurity. And perhaps Jude has gone as far as he can to rescue himself and so felt a desperate yearning to reach out his hand and hope that somebody would hoist him up. But if you recall last episode, it befouled my mood that he had done this thing because he didn't do it in a forthright manner. And now I'm getting annoyed all over talking about it. He cast the letters in terms of uh, seeking advice the way you would dear Abby. But unlike Dear Abby, he was kind of secretly hoping that they would give him a boatload of money. And I really don't understand why he can't afford them. I mean, he is a working stonemason. I don't know what college, it, what college costs there in Christminster, but it seems to me he can at the very least take a class or two. I don't know. So he's written these letters. And we have yet to hear a reply from anybody. The last thing that happened is he was kind of kicking himself in the in the in the there. And he was saying, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. But of course, he did do it. It's that thing. It's that's it's that sort of uh, pseudo self-recrimination. I hate to be that guy kind of self-recrimination. Well, then don't be that guy. I hate to be that guy. But do you have a couple bucks? I hate to be that guy. But can I bum a cigarette? Well, don't be that guy. Or be that guy. So he'd be—he's—he's he's beating himself up, and he's saying—he's saying, he's saying well, really? Maybe I'm a, a man of bad character. After all, like who—who who else would like go up to a stranger in the street and demand something?" And this put me in the mind of—I have had very few interactions with these people, uh, less than a handful. But when TMZ or their emissaries approach somebody on the street. And ask them some random ass question about some random ass thing. That also really pisses me off. I think it's harassment. And I tell them that. Fortunately, I'm not famous enough that it's a real problem. But I can imagine it being a problem for people. And the idea that you somehow sign up for this. You sign up to be harassed on the street. Not true. You're not signing up for that. Now, why do I say that? Because it's, it's that same thing. It's that same thing of uh, inserting yourself into somebody's life without permission. So he's saying, maybe I have a bad character. And then now I'm starting the book. Nevertheless, he found himself clinging to the hope of some reply as to his one last chance of redemption. He waited day after day, saying that it was perfectly absurd to expect, yet expecting. While he waited, he was suddenly stirred by news about Phillotson. Now you remember Phillotson has taken up with Sue Bridehead there in the uh, in the suburbs. Phillotson was giving up the school near Christminster for a larger one further south in Midwessex. What this meant, how it would affect his cousin whether as seemed possible, it was a practical move of the schoolmasters towards a larger income in view of a provision for two instead of one, he would not allow himself to say. And the tender relations between Phillotson and the young girl of whom Jude was passionately enamored effectually made it repugnant to Jude's tastes to apply to Phillotson for advice on his own scheme." He's disgusted with Phillotson. Well, really, he's disgusted with himself. Let's be honest. He's re- the person he's most upset with is himself. Meanwhile, the academic dignitaries to whom Jude had written vouchsafed no answer. And the young man was thus thrown back entirely on himself as formerly with the added gloom of a weakened hope. By indirect inquiries, he soon perceived clearly what he had long uneasily suspected, that to qualify himself for certain open scholarships and exhibitions was the only brilliant course. But to do this, a good deal of coaching would be necessary and much natural ability." It was next to impossible that a man reading on his own system, however widely and thoroughly, even over the prolonged period of 10 years, should be able to compete with those who had passed their lives under trained teachers and had worked to ordained lines. I I, I just don't agree with that. I just don't agree with that. It seems to me that somebody who holds a scholarship would be much more inclined to give that scholarship to somebody like Jude, who has worked his ass off for the last 10 years, sort of reading, uh, you know, scattershot as it may be, but had taught himself Greek, had taught himself Latin, had become a scholar of some sort, an amateur scholar, uh, surely, but but a scholar versus the kid who's had private tutors who doesn't even need the scholarship. It seems to me like any good head of admissions, anybody who's in a position toward a scholarship would look at Jude and say, yeah, that's exactly the kind of dude who we should be giving a scholarship to. And I don't know why he doesn't see that. And I don't know if maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe Hardy knows something about the British college system that I don't understand. But it seems to me like if you can afford the private tutors, if you can afford to uh, study under the ordained lines, as he says, then you're probably not in need of the scholarship. But Jude is in need of a scholarship and has proven himself worthy, I think, of it. The other course that of buying himself in, so to speak, seemed the only one really open to men like him, the difficulty being simply of a material kind. With the help of his information, he began to reckon the extent of this material obstacle. Well, why hadn't he done that before? Why hadn't he figured out how much the fucking college would cost when when he moved to Christminster? I mean, he didn't ask. How many pence, sir? How many pence to get into the college? How many pounds sterling? How many crowns will it cost? What do you mean he's just doing this for the first time now? How long has he been in Christminster? Here's what's annoying to me. It's the same thing that was annoying to me in the last episode. I feel like Hardy is kind of losing the thread here. It feels just a little bit scattershot, and I'm growing annoyed. What did you think? How did you think you were going to get into the college, if not by buying your way in or by scholarship? Your big idea was to write to the the deans who had certain physiognomies that you thought looked appealing. That was your big idea. What are you going to do? Suck them off to get in? With the help of his information, he began to reckon the extent of this material obstacle and ascertained to his dismay that at the rate of which, with the best of fortune, he would be able to save money. 15 years (laughs) must elapse before he could be in a position to forward testimonials to the head of a college and advance to a matriculation examination. The undertaking was hopeless. Well, you've already put in 10, dude. I'm watching Making a Murderer right now, season two. Stephen Avery's been in jail once, uh, falsely for 18 years, this time for like 12 years, perhaps falsely, perhaps not. He had patience, you know? You can have patience too. You're still a young man. He saw what a curious and cunning glamour the neighborhood of the place had exercised over him to get there and live there, to move among the churches and halls and become imbued with the genius loci. uh, I guess that means the, the sort of innate genius of the place. That's a pure guess on my part. Had seemed to his dreaming youth as the spot shaped its charms to him from its halo on the horizon, the obvious and ideal thing to do. Let me only get there, he said, with the fatuousness of Crusoe over his big boat. Oh, God, what is that a reference to? Crusoe and his big boat. Who's Crusoe? It doesn't mean Robinson Crusoe, surely. I don't think that book had been written yet. I'm looking it up. I hate looking shit up. All right. Well, there is a footnote in here. So let me see if I can skip to the footnote. Let me see if I can even find that footnote. Oh, well, how do you like that? It is William. uh, It is, uh, yeah, Defoe, not Willem Defoe. The other Defoe, the guy who wrote Robinson Crusoe. Uh, In Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, the hero, alone as Jude felt himself to be, built a boat which turned out to be too big for him to move to the water. And then there's a quote from the book this grieved me heartily and now i saw though too late the folly of beginning a work before we count the cost so i'm the idiot who has been reading 166 pages of thomas hardy and ignoring the little footnotes that they have there which explains everything in the back of the book well now i know and uh i deserve a break for that like like a metaphorical break like oh give him a break and also i'm just going to take a break
0: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Back on Obscure, I've been doing some heavy research uh, on my own book here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and I am ready to go on. Uh, So, let me only get there he had said, with the fatuousness of Caruso over his big boat, and the rest is but a matter of time and energy. It would have been far better for him in every way if he had never come within sight and sound of the delusive precincts, had gone to some busy commercial town with the sole object of making money by his wits and thence surveyed his plan in true perspective. Well, all that was clear to him amounted to this, that the whole scheme had burst up like an iridescent soap bubble under the touch of a reasoned inquiry. He looked back at himself along the vista of his past years, and his thought was akin to Heinz, H-E-I-N-E apostrophe S. And then here's the quote. Above the youth's inspired and flashing eyes, I see the motley, mocking fool's cap. Rise. Now, you may be asking me to explain that, and to which I say, Well, how could I possibly do that? Well, there's another note there 22, 22. The lines from Hein are from Gotterdamerung in the Heimkar. Heimkar. The poet is characteristically explaining how he sees through everything. So Jude is once again bemoaning his fate. Wow, wow, wow. I spent 10 years studying just to come to Christminster and to not get into college. And what am I doing here now, the other thing that he could do, which he just alluded to he is he could go to some other city, some cheaper city, make some bucks, save up, come back it wouldn 't take fifteen years it might take you know less time, but he 's not going to do that he 's just... I woke up today. I just got back from my trip i 've been gone for two weeks. You knew I was in Atlanta. I also traveled to uh, Austin, Texas, Houston, Texas, St. Louis, Missouri, and Madison, Wisconsin. And I got back today and woke up in a state of mild exhaustion. If there can be such a thing as mild exhaustion, that's what I'm experiencing, which is to say I'm tired but uh, and, and, and very tired. In fact, I woke up early 6.20 this morning to see my children off to school, even though they are senior level children, 15 and 17, and they do not need my help. I like to see them out the door because I am the world's greatest father. My brain has been fuzzy all day. My thoughts are hazy like Jude's. My thoughts are somewhat all over the place like Jude's. And I don't have the same level of self-recrimination today that Jude has, but of course, my self-recrimination uh never fully goes away. Today it's focused on the second bowl of ice cream I had last night. Fortunately, he had not been allowed to bring his disappointment into his dear Sue's life by involving her in this collapse, and the painful details of his awakening to a sense of his limitations should now be spared her as far as possible. After all, she had only known a little part of the miserable struggle in which he had been engaged, thus unequipped, poor, and unforeseeing. He always remembered the appearance of the afternoon on which he awoke from his dream. Not quite knowing what to do with himself, he went up to an octagonal chamber in the lantern of a singularly built theater that was set amidst this quaint and singular city. It had windows all round from which an outlook over the whole town and its edifices could be gained." That's like in St. Louis, they got the arch. That's where I just was. I had a nice view of the arch from my hotel room. And it occurred to me because you can go up in the arch. You can take an elevator up into the arch, like Jude did, you know, to get up into the lantern of this theater, and you can see all around. But the thing about St. Louis is the only thing worth seeing in St. Louis is the arch. So when you're in the arch, there's nothing to see. Jude's eyes swept all the views in succession meditatively mournfully yet sturdily those buildings and their associations and privileges were not for him from the looming roof of the great library into which he hardly ever had time to enter his gaze traveled on to the varied spires halls gables streets chapels gardens quadrangles which composed the ensemble of this unrivaled panorama he saw that his destiny lay not with these but among the manual toilers in the shabby perlu. <laughs> That's a good word, perlu. I got to look it up. That one doesn't have a footnote, but I do like the word enough that I want to P U R L I E U. Perlu. The area near or surrounding a place. So just the area. Uh but among the manual toilers in the shabby perlue, which he himself occupied, unrecognized as part of the city at all by its visitors and panegyrists, yet without whose denizens the hard readers could not read nor the high thinkers live." He looked over the town into the country beyond, to the trees which screened her, whose presence had at first been the support of his heart and whose loss was now a maddening torture. But for this blow, he might have borne with his fate. With Sue as companion, he could have renounced his ambitions with a smile." Without her, it was inevitable that the reaction from the long strain to which he had subjected himself should affect him so disastrously. Phillotson had no doubt passed through a similar intellectual disappointment to that which now enveloped him, but the schoolmaster had been since blessed with the consolation of sweet Sue, while for him there was no consoler. Yeah, blame her. It's Sue's fault that you're miserable. No man. It ain't. I got to I got to be real with you man. It ain't. It's your fault. For whatever reasons. It's not, you know, or it's the fault of fate, whatever. But don't put it on her. Come on man. You got to do better than that. Don't blame the lady. Point your finger at yourself, my man. You yeah, know it's a, it's a funny thing. Uh because we tell ourselves here in America that anybody can become anything. But of course, that is nonsense. It's very hard. It's very hard to escape out of poverty and get yourself a good education, get yourself into a good school and all the rest of it. It's certainly possible. And I feel like somebody in Jude's position, somebody who had done the work that Jude had done, actually may have found the path. You know, He certainly would have graduated high school probably with honors. But in Jude's time and place, he couldn't even go to school. He had to help out at the bakery. But if you compare it like, you know, he would have gotten through high school and he would have shown great aptitude for something. At the very least, he could have matriculated into a community college and used that as a springboard, you know, into something else. But I guess those opportunities didn't exist for him. But the book's not over, guys. He could still make it. He could still excel We're still holding out a lot of hope for Jude. He could still end up like my friend, Mr. David Wayne, who's a wild success. And David, he's had Jude moments. We all have, where he tried to do stuff, you know, and worked really hard at it, and then you know it fell apart. Things didn't work out. And I thought I'd talk to him about it because he's come out on the other side. Now he's a super successful writer and director and actor. We just did Wet Hot American Summer together on Netflix. He just did a a really funny and cool movie about National Lampoon called A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, also on Netflix. And now I'm going to bother him during breakfast. Hi, David. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What are you doing? Making brekkie. Uh,
2: Making breakfast. I'm just putting some sausages on my kids' plates. Here we go.
1: We're going to be ready. Fabulous. Uh,
2: there you go, little kids.
1: (laughs) Names. Here is uh, here's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Tell me what this is. Okay. In my in the book, Jude the Obscure, the main character Jude. He has spent years of his life studying and working hard and trying to get into basically college and college isn't really available to him. But he's he's done everything he can to make to to succeed in this. And then what happens is he basically gets rejected. And uh, it occurred to me. That maybe you and I know you and I have worked really hard on stuff that ends up going nowhere. And I, I wondered if you had any reminiscences about that, about that, that, that experience. There's a book
2: um, from a
1: long time ago? 1895. What's the best example of that, though? Well, I was thinking most recently of uh, Moon Cruise when we were working on Moon Cruise. I feel like really hard and then Great. just got yeah. slammed in our faces, slammed shut. I'll tell the listeners, Moon Cruise was a, was a TV idea that I had. And Michael Showalter and David Wayne and our friend John Stern helped work on it. And it was basically the love boat in space. And I think we all thought, oh, that's a slam dunk. Um, I can't think of a better idea for anything. <laughs> what about a podcast where somebody reads Jude the Obscure out loud? Exactly. That, this, this would be a better idea than that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we worked really hard on it. And, and I will say that I took a lot of the blame for it not going well because, because I think everybody agreed that I didn't do a good job on my part, although I tried really hard. But you, you worked to the best of your skill level. <laughs> That's right, which was not, I guess, high enough. Yeah,
2: but you can't, no one can be blamed for their own lack of inborn talent. I feel like part of the nature of entertainment business and also certainly my experience of it has been so many things that you work on in our business the way I've done it anyway. You work really hard on it. You figure it all out and then it just falls apart. Right. And I remember once after we did Wet Hot American Summer I tried to get more projects going with Michael Showalter but the movie had not done well but it had done It had gotten certain people's attention in Hollywood, so we came out to Los Angeles and tried to put things together. And I remember after about a year and a half, I counted 32 projects we (laughs) had tried to mount (laughs) that all went nowhere. I made a list. That sounds like a lot. Uh, TV shows, one was called Retro Metro. Uh
0: I think we had tried to get some sort of
2: Stella project going at that time, which Uh didn't happen. I remember I had written out the list to make myself feel bad or to justify how shitty I felt about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think oh we had written a movie called The Raging Watsons about multiple parties happening in the same house. And, I mean there were all, some of them were good ideas. I mean one of them was they came together which um, then came back to life 10 years later.
1: Yeah, and ended up getting made.
2: Um, what I have found, you know, you just keep remembering and keep pushing. And then eventually they, they do get paid,
1: or they, or they can. Well, Jude's thing is that he ends up feeling terrible about himself and then his life seems to get worse and worse and worse. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have, at least to this point, the, uh, the fortitude to kind of go on, although he doesn't really have a choice.
2: Well, that certainly happens too. Some people get hit by something in life and then that's it. I know my grandmother, when she lost her husband, she was in her 40s and never recovered and lived to be 90. Really? The, the entire time. like She never quite, I mean, she, it's slightly subjective, but I would say her main thing in her life was that she's depressed because she lost her husband and she's got nothing much to live for, but she just happened to keep living until she was an old woman.
1: I hope if I die, Martha does that for me
2: she's already promised me she won't <laughs> I also feel like though one of the things I've learned doing what I do is that it so goes with the territory that I don't get too worked up when something falls apart
1: but that must have taken you years to learn
2: I, of course a long long time but eventually you realize it just is part of part of it but what you don't really get used to the idea of Putting real love and care and work into something, and then seeing it going nowhere. Yeah, and so and and the whole nature of the way that t- television pilots are made in general is if they if they get made, most of the time, that means you get together a hundred people and you spend many many months or a year and millions of dollars often to create this. Movie, which is the first episode of a TV show, and it's like a whole chunk of your life and your creative soul goes into it, and most of the time it doesn't go anywhere. And not only that, literally, it's not even shown, not even the thing you made is ever shown anywhere, even for somebody who's dying to see it. Um, So I find that system to be a little kooky, but that's that is actually why I think we've both. Done a lot of things that are more like web series than I did, as you do with social media. Things that you know, no one's going to stop you. I think that's what keeps an artist alive: is the ability to do certain
1: things that no one has to give you permission for. Yeah, but then you got to pay for that chicken sage sausage. Oh God, it's so good! All right, well, David, I mean, I promised you a short interview. This is a short interview. It's all I need. I, I hope I've given uh,
2: the listeners a little bit of insight into. Jack Reacher? Is that
1: what you said the name of the book is? That's right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. David Wayne, guys, and we're going to read more of Jack Reacher after this word from our sponsors. it's me, Michael Ian Black, back to read Victorian literature out loud. So just to set the scene, uh, Jude is bummed because he, you know, he's just not where he wants to be academically or uh, physically or romantically or in. He's not where he wants to be. Uh, and unlike Mr. Phillotson, he does not have Sue with him to make it all better. Descending to the streets, he went listlessly along till he arrived at an inn and entered it. Here he drank several glasses of beer in rapid succession, and when he came out, it was night. By the light of the flickering lamps, he rambled home to supper and had not long been sitting at table when his landlady brought up a letter that had just arrived for him. Hmm, I wonder what's in the letter. She laid it down as if impressed with a sense of its possible importance. And on looking at it, Jude perceived that it bore the embossed stamp of one of the colleges whose heads he had addressed. One, at last, cried Jude. Somebody had written back one of these physiognomically appealing gentleman, had written back at last. Now at his moment of greatest despair, we see a sliver of hope. What does it say? The communication was brief and not exactly what he had expected, though it really was from the master in person. It ran thus. Biblio College. Sir, I have read your letter with interest, and judging from your description of yourself as a working man, I venture to think that you will have a much better chance of success in life. <laughs> Here it comes by remaining in your own sphere and sticking to your trade than by adopting any other course. That, therefore, is what I advise you to do. Yours faithfully, T. Tetupfenay. And then it ends to Mr. J. Fowley stonemason. So I guess that's the proper way you address letters then. I mean, lovely of him to respond, I suppose. But Hardy, in his way, has built us up a, a little hope and then almost immediately torn it away, which, you know, I love this terribly sensible advice exasperated jude (laughs) he had known all that before he knew it was true yet it seemed a hard slap after 10 years of labor and its effect upon him just now was to make him rise recklessly from the table and instead of reading as usual to go downstairs and into the street He stood at a bar and tossed off two or three glasses, then unconsciously sauntered along till he came to a spot called the Four Ways in the middle of the city, gazing abstractedly at the groups of people like one in a trance till, coming to himself, he began talking to the policeman fixed there. That officer yawned stretched out his elbows, elevated himself an inch and a half on the balls of his toes, smiled and looking humorously at Jude said, you've had a wet young man. No, I've only begun, he replied cynically. Whatever his wetness, his brains were dry enough. And if you remember from the last episode, brains there in the city of the walking dead, brains. So he has dry enough brains that need are in need of some further wetting. He only heard in part the policeman's further remarks, having fallen into thought on what struggling people like himself had stood at that crossway whom nobody ever thought of now. It had more history than the oldest college in the city. I think I think that's a typo. I think that I think I have found a typo. I think it's supposed to say it had more history than the oldest college in the city, but it says that. Huh. Oh, look at me finding a typo in Thomas Hardy. Oh, look at me. It was literally teeming, stratified with the shades of human groups who had met there for tragedy, comedy, farce. Real enactments of the intensest kind. At four ways, men had stood and talked of Napoleon, the loss of America, the execution of King Charles, the burning of the martyrs, the Crusades, the Norman conquest, possibly of the arrival of Caesar. Here, the two sexes had met for loving, hating, coupling, parting, had waited, had suffered for each other, had triumphed over each other, cursed each other in jealousy, blessed each other in forgiveness. He began to see that the town life was a book of humanity infinitely more palpitating, varied, and compendious than the gown life. These struggling men and women before him were the reality of Christminster, though they knew little of Christ or Minster. That was one of the humors of things. The floating population of students and teachers who did not who did know both in a way were not Christminster in a local sense at all. He looked at his watch and in pursuit of this idea, he went on till he came to a public hall where a promenade concert was in progress. Jude entered and found the room full of shop youths and girls, soldiers, apprentices, boys of 11 smoking cigarettes, and light women of the more respectable and amateur class. He had tapped the real Christminster life. A band was playing, and the crowd walked about and jostled each other, each other, and every now and then a man got upon a platform and sang a comic song. The spirit of Sue seemed to hover round him and prevent his flirting and drinking with the frolicsome girls who made advances, wistful to gain a little joy. At 10 o'clock, he came away, choosing a circuitous route homeward to pass the gates of the college whose head had just sent him the note. The gates were shut, and by an impulse, he took from his pocket the lump of chalk, which as a workman he usually carried there, and wrote along the wall. Quote, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? Job, chapter 12, verse 3. And so ends chapter 6 of Jude the Obscure, in part the second, of course, of Jude the Obscure. And I read it in its entirety because I found myself moved uh, by its sentiment. And it is a sentiment long expressed here at home, which is to say the wilds of Connecticut and and the Perlew. Uh, around here. uh, And by that, I mean the nation and by humans all over the world, which is this sentiment, the stuff of life and the knowledge of life comes not from books, comes not from academe, comes not from study, but from the simple interactions between people on a daily basis. And we learn so much more from these uh, little interactions these these moments we have of humanity all of us bound together that is where we learn about life much more so than poring over books and scrolls there is a place for poring over books and scrolls and in my life it has been a considerable place i have loved acquiring knowledge i have devoted a podcast to reading one of these books and or scrolls entitled jude the obscure but it is true And Jude is now appreciating this for perhaps the first time, that the loamy stuff of life is the stuff that goes between our fingers every moment of every day. It is the stuff of a tip of the hat to the homely girl who passes us on the street. It is the simple exchange of goods between barman and patron of said bar, uh, the little levity between wet fellow and dry policeman. It is all the stuff. And though we seek to better ourselves in every way, we don't necessarily succeed in doing that just by going to the local college and saying, sign me up. We better ourselves in innumerable ways. That's just one way. And Jude is belatedly coming to this recognition. Now, will that set his heart at peace? I doubt it. I really doubt it because uh, then we'd have no book and we, we, we would have no need to continue on. But there is something rather reassuring and rather soothing and placating in his belated understanding that his life is not uh, reduced by hanging around the hoi polloi, but is in fact enhanced. And when he went to that little concert and he saw the people jostling, the soldiers, the apprentices, the boys of 11 smoking cigarettes, he maybe gained a new appreciation. In fact, he did. He said so for the town in which he finds himself, that all the that view that he had, the spires, the gables, the colleges, etc., was really just that's really just the surface and behind those walls and on those cobblestone streets are the people that animate those edifices and hopefully will animate Jude's heart as he proceeds. I'm feeling a little better now than I was about Jude, feeling a little bit better about life as a whole, uh, as I sit here in my own ivory tower, which is, of course, the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library constructed entirely of ivory. My thoughts are turning to the more mundane aspects of my life, the dinner that I will make for my family, perhaps going to the post office and saying a fine how do you do to the lady who works behind the counter. And I would encourage all of you, dear listeners, to go out into your world and do all the regular stuff. It is what you do, is what we all do every day of our lives. And it's a good thing, I would say. We're left with something a little bit more resonant than I, I feel like we were left with last episode. We're, we're left with something a little deeper, a little richer. And uh, I, I would say that's a good thing. Will Jude find contentedness in this new attitude? Will he uh, find happiness forevermore? Will he find some new love with which to share this keen insight into the nature of humanity? Again, I doubt it, but we'll find out next time on another scintillating episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. And subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin and Robin Lynn who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf especially Chris Bannon Colin Anderson and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the Wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.